Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, welcome to New Books in East Asia. I'm your host, Carla Nappi. I just spent a really interesting and productive hour talking with Da Ching Yang about his recent book, Technology of Empire, Telecommunications and Japanese Expansion in Asia, 1883 to 1945. And that was published by the Harvard University Asia Center in 2010. This is a book that's not only just an incredibly rich resource for historians of modern East Asia, especially historians of Japan and historians interested in transnational history in modernity, Um, but also potentially an incredibly interesting resource and case study for anyone interested in the history of science and especially technology in modernity, uh, regardless of whether you have any background in the history of East Asia. This work is based on an exceptionally rich body of primary sources and archival documents and leads us through um, a series of chapters that are just expertly woven together um, in making a a large and I think really powerful argument about the power of telecommunications um, in the technology of empire and really, I think, make the reader think very carefully about the role of techno-imperialism in the larger history of empire in East Asia and beyond. Hello, Daqing. Hello, Carla. We're here today to talk with Daqing Yang about his really wonderful recent book, Technology of Empire, Telecommunications and Japanese Expansion in Asia, 1883 to 1945. That came out in 2010 with the Harvard University Asia Center. Now, I had the pleasure of reading this just recently, and I can say it really is a fascinating story of techno-imperialism in modern Japan. Um, And based on just for somebody who is an academic working with primary sources, this was just an astounding and incredibly impressive range of sources that um, is brought to bear in telling this story. So I'm really thrilled that you're here with us um, to talk about the book today. And thank you so much. Well, thank you for saying such kind words about my book and inviting me to this uh, forum. Oh, of course. Um, of course. It's my pleasure. Daqing, could you start us off by saying a little bit about yourself and telling us a little bit about your background? Sure. Um, I'm teaching modern Japanese history at George Washington University, but currently I'm teaching at a Japanese university in Tokyo. Uh-huh. I was born and raised in China and uh, studied history at Nanjing University, which is in my hometown, uh-huh. and then I came over to the United States to pursue graduate studies, and eventually ended up uh, studying Japanese history and uh, teaching uh, since then. Uh-huh. How did you decide to focus on Japanese history? Yes, um, I get asked this question a lot. Um, I think there's several <laughs> reasons. Um, when I first came to the United States, uh, I had studied a little bit Japanese language through Japanese classmates at my university in China. So I had some exposure and also had exposure to Japanese popular culture in the late 70s, early 80s. 
And then um, I did my master's at University of Hawaii. That's where I first uh, took Japanese history classes, which really interested me uh, a great deal. So ever since then, just little by little, I moved uh, more into the field of Japanese studies and especially modern Japanese history. Um, yeah, so it's not like one-time sort of decision, but it's, it's a gradual decision, so to speak. Right. I think that's probably true for most of us, right? <laughs> I, have I think to... so, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I have trouble reproducing that series of decisions for myself, too. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, exactly. So this is, um, this is a book that's very much firmly within the field of modern Japanese history, although it's very transnational in scope, which is actually really exciting for a reader. How did you come to this particular topic? Yes, um... I study Japanese history in a regional context, so I'm more interested in how Japan interacted with its neighbors Mm -hmm. in particular. So for a while, I was trying to find a proper dissertation topic that focused on, say, Japan's relation with China in modern times, and mainly from a political economic Mm -hmm. uh, angle. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was not particularly interested in reproducing the kind of diplomatic history in the old-fashioned way. So I was looking at how economic and uh, political forces uh, intersect with each other. Mm-hmm. And for a while, I was um, exploring uh, how business community in Japan uh, played a role in modern Sino-Japanese relations. Mm-hmm. But I was not particularly satisfied with the kind of uh, sources I was able to find in Japan. And then I came back to Tokyo and uh, sat on an economic history seminar at Keio University. Mm -hmm. And one of the professors uh, had written um, articles on the postal history of modern Japan and really opened a new kind of... uh, uh, field for me, so to speak, that I had not paid attention to the role of communication networks in Japan's history, let alone Japan's history of expansion in Asia. And in a way, this is really a kind of virgin territory. So with that uh, sort of problematic, the Japanese called Mondai Ishiki, mm-hmm. I uh, began exploring uh, archival uh, archive sources in Japan, and uh, I came across a really amazing collection of uh, government documents on Japan's telecommunication uh, related activities on the Asian continent uh, in the first half of the 20th century. So that really started the ball rolling, and then I combined, you know, good uh, firsthand sources with a question that had been with me for some time, namely how Japan managed to build a ancient Asian empire in the late 19th century, especially early 20th century, and being the only Asian country uh, doing so. Mm-hmm. Wow. 
This, um, I mean, you mentioned that you started with this one particularly fascinating archive that you found. There are, yes. I, I think, a reader looking at the bibliography of this book, mm-hmm. it's just incredibly impressive, the range of sources that you brought to bear. How long did this, and how, how long did this research process take you, and how intensive was it? Because it seems like there's just an, an amazing array of sources that you used for this. Well, year. the short answer is too long. <laughs> <laughs> So in the first stage uh, for my dissertation, I used the archive at the Communications Museum in downtown Tokyo. Uh-huh. Um, and I was surprised that nobody has really looked at uh, these sources from the former Ministry of Communications, which ceased to exist after 1945. Right. Um, so, and then I went uh, to look for sources related to Japanese telecommunications in China during World War II. Now, as you will see in my book, um, Japan established a series of telecommunications companies in occupied areas during World War II in China. Mm-hmm. And uh, I assume that all of these companies were taken over by the nationalist government after 1945, and I assume, again, that their records should be somewhere in China. And in the number two archives in Nanjing, I did find one of those uh, companies that had a essentially complete uh, record uh, in that particular archive. Mm-hmm. So that was the second uh, body of archival materials. <laughs> And then, after finishing my PhD, I came back to Tokyo, uh, essentially, to do some kind of postdoc. And thanks to the help uh, of uh, several Japanese scholars and uh, former officials, I was able to gain access to what then was the uh, KDD, uh, Kokusai Denshin Denwa, so International Telephone Telecommunication Company mm-hmm. uh, archive. And surprisingly, um, this company had um, a good... Uh, archival collection of pre-war and wartime documents. Mm -hmm. So these are the three major archival collections I used. And of course, I also made use of uh, published sources, as well as uh, newspapers and uh, magazines related to telecommunications. Right. Well, thank you so much. Now, moving to the book itself, the book is actually, it's its a very rich book, and there's a lot going on. Um, you've built it as a story that moves uh, among four parts. So the first part is genesis, then technology, control, and network. Um, the time frame of the book, uh, if we just look at the, the times that the individual chapters cover, ranges from 1853 to 1945. Um, and what I'd like to do is sort of start getting into it by looking at one of the really interesting vignettes that you use to begin these chapters. So if we start, well, the book actually itself opens up with um, Emperor Hirohito's radio broadcast on the 15th of August, 1945, right? So you set this up as something that's actually um, quite an important set piece for the book in that the book essentially begins and ends with Hirohito. Can you talk um, a little bit about this radio broadcast for listeners who might not be familiar with um, this aspect of modern Japanese history? Right. Um, As we know, Toward the summer of 1945, it became all apparent that Japan was losing the war. 
And then the early August, the United States dropped two atomic bombs over Japan, and the Soviet Union declared war against Japan. Mm-hmm. And uh, the Japanese government essentially were faced with the choice whether they had to surrender unconditionally, that is to accept the Potsdam Declaration, or to fight on which would uh, almost definitely lead to the destruction. So the Japanese leadership um, decided to accept uh, the Potsdam Declaration. But that was a very, very difficult decision for the Japanese public, as well as the diehard uh, military to accept. So the leaders thought of this uh, idea of having the emperor uh, record a speech and then broadcast the speech to the entire nation as well as the Japanese communities throughout Asia to convince them that it is the emperor's desire to end the war, uh, to surrender. Um, So I use this as an example to show that communication uh, often play a crucial role in, in this case, uh, ending a war. Uh, and that literally changed the course of Japanese history, of course. And I feel um, communication is often overlooked when historians uh, study the past. Mm-hmm. Right. And and you actually set this up um, really beautifully as a way of making clear of something that the book is going, the rest of the book will go on to argue, which is, as you put it, um, communication technologies as technologies of empire are the nerve system of government and society. And you, you talk about this in the um, rubric of techno-imperialism. Right. So, so let's get into it. <laughs> let's, okay. get, let's, let's dive right in. Um, so part one or Genesis, um, for listeners who may not yet have had an opportunity to read the book, this is a, a part of the book that sets up the early history of telecommunications um, in the emergence of modern Japan and its sort of nascent empire, as you put it. Right, right. Now, it opens with this set piece um, where Commodore Matthew Perry arrives in Edo Bay in 1854 um, and describes the first public demonstration of a working electric telegraph. Can you describe that a little bit for us? Right. Um, It is really interesting for any historian of modern Japan to know that, uh, you know, the first encounter between, um, you know, Commodore Perry, the American naval commander, who quote-unquote, opened Japan uh, in 1853-54, brought with him uh, a number of what we would call high-tech gadgets, uh, or today's terminology. And one of them uh, was an electric telegraph. Now, the Japanese, some of them have heard about it. They read about the electric telegraph through the books they acquired from the Dutch, who were the only uh, Westerners allowed to stay um, in Japan during the 250-year isolation period, known as the Tokugawa period. But for them to see an actual telegraph uh, work was really an eye-opening experience. So I thought it was really interesting that the the beginning, so to speak, of uh, Japan's modern history also had something to do with uh, telecommunication. Um, just as the end of this period of history, that is 1945, uh, was also intrinsically linked to uh, modern communication. Yeah. So that was the first encounter that 
so to speak. I think that works really well. And it's the first of, um, or perhaps the second of many, many points in this book that make it, I think, a resource, not just for historians of modern East Asia or modern Japan, but also for um, the growing body of historians interested in uh, science and technology, and specifically as it pertains to Asian history. So right, really great. Um, now, you this set piece is actually really effective in setting up a theme that's going to recur for the rest of the book and that certainly um, is introduced in this chapter, which is the tension in this, at this point, early history of telecommunications in Japan between um, uh, the pursuit of autonomy and the reliance right. on um, sort of what we might call foreign um, Technology. technologies and peoples. Um, right. So can you say a little bit about that? Because you start, uh, this chapter starts talking about submarine cables in particular in this context and uh, who's laying the cables and how does, uh, how does that affect the story here? Right. Um, yeah, the very first chapter uh, more or less correspond with a period where submarine telegraphy uh, dominated the field of telecommunications. It's roughly from the mid-19th century to the early 20th century. Um, submarine cables were really what some people call the uh, Victorian Internet, uh, was really the most cutting-edge technology uh, of its time. And it was uh, technologically advanced and also financially very costly. So uh, in this particular case, it was a Danish company called the Great Northern Telegraph Company uh, that built the first submarine cables to Japan uh, in 1871 from the Russian city Vladivostok to Nagasaki and then also connect Nagasaki with Shanghai. And uh, from Vladivostok, the same company had landlines running through the Russian uh, territory to Europe. So in 1871, we could say Japan got online for the first time ever uh, with this worldwide uh, telecommunication network. Of course, uh, Britain was a big player in submarine telegraphy, and many people attribute to the fact that uh, explain why London became the center of world finance and news was because London was really the center of worldwide submarine cables. Mm -hmm. that, that's fascinating. Now, so as part of the story about submarine cables and this real tension between reliance on foreign technology and um, autonomy, this chapter goes on to talk about the transformations in Japanese telecommunications, which is a theme that uh, just structures the entire book, um, with military victories over Qing, China, and Russia in this period. Could you talk a little bit about that? Right. Um, let me just start with uh, the question about the technological autonomy. Um, sure. Because of the um, technology involved in the endeavor, um, the first um, domestic land telegraph as well as the first international uh, telegraph communication were done by foreign engineers. Mm -hmm. But uh, like in many other aspects of Meiji Japan, um, the government tried very hard to um, catch up um, by inviting foreign experts to teach in Japan. In fact, uh, Japan had probably the world's first department of electrical engineering. Uh, 
Mm-hmm. Um, and Japanese students went abroad to study. Um, so relatively quickly, uh, Japan managed to acquire a lot of technological know-how. So by 1895, after Japan defeated China and acquired Taiwan as the first overseas colony, the Japanese engineers were able to build its first long-distance submarine cable linking the Japanese home, li- home islands with uh, the first overseas colony, Taiwan. Um, then by the time Japan defeated Russia in 1905, Japan was already building its own uh, cables from Japan to Manchuria. And uh, by then, uh, technologically, Japan had uh, made a lot of advance in gaining this uh, technological autonomy. But the other side of the equation is the various um, uh, treaties, agreements Japan signed with companies like Great Northern that gave the Danish company a certain monopoly because uh, for companies to invest in telecommunication infrastructure, it was hugely costly. So they tend to ask for a certain kind of uh, monopolistic control in order to ensure the revenue. So beside the technology, there's also this uh, diplomatic battle, so to speak, uh, Japan had to wage in order to gain this uh, so-called autonomy uh, vis-a-vis foreign influences. Mm -hmm. And this influence actually, or this tension and this um, effort to shirk or shirk these foreign influences actually carries us through into the next chapter right where we move from uh, sort of a focus on if on submarine cables if that was the object on the of the first we move mm-hmm. now into the emergence of wireless right. and vacuum tubes in um, early 20th century Japan can you talk a little bit about um, what's happening in that transformation Yes. Uh, so the wireless communication was first invented at the end of uh, 19th century and came to be uh, really the dominant mold uh, in uh, military communication uh, and increasingly a important uh, medium for other kinds of uh, civilian communication and even later uh, essentially became the same technology as radio broadcasting. Um, so... As Japan had been quite dependent on um, submarine cables, which were largely controlled by foreign companies, um, many of its uh, government officials saw the wireless as an opportunity to um, reduce its dependency on these uh, foreign um, submarine cables. So there was a lot of excitement. Um, and then also, of course, there was the military that saw the wireless um, and very important technology for Navy particularly, because the ships uh, could use wireless to stay in contact with each other or with the land, uh, even in motion. And this is something that cannot be done with fixed cables or landlines. So the military also got very excited. Um, but the problem is, uh, after World War One, all the country, major um, Western countries um, realized this is an exciting field to get into, and uh, they turned their attention to China, where 
Germany had uh, tried to uh, extend its influence in wireless before World War One. British had its uh, uh, design to sell its uh, model of wireless to China, and the United States also was eyeing China market for wireless. And Japan uh, was really caught in this uh, multinational uh, international rivalry over the wireless market in China. So that was uh, one part of the story uh, in, that I tell in chapter two. Right. And as part of this, what, what you do, I think, a really great job of focusing in on the context of Manchukuo specifically as um, an area where this is playing out, right? Yes. Um, Manchuria at this time uh, had already come under Japanese sphere of influence as a result of uh, Japanese victory over Russia in 1905. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is an area where the wireless actually um, has an interesting story because the Chinese warlord um, that in, uh, was in control of Manchuria, uh, the Zhang Zhuoling, uh, was also a modernizer in uh, wireless communication. He um, built a large uh, wireless station in uh, Shenyang, at that time known as Mukden, mm-hmm. uh, with the German technology and American technology. And that was uh, really the uh, uh, most advanced communication center for China in the 1920s. And when Japan invaded Manchuria in 1931, uh, this uh, Chinese uh, wireless facility was taken over and then turned to uh, propagandistic use by the Japanese military. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, yeah, Manchuria, in this case, uh, had a very interesting role in, in uh, uh, telecommunication history. Yeah. And in raising the um, issue of Manchuria, you raise a concept called, that you call informal empire. Right, and the right. particular challenges of, of um, Japan dealing with informal empire in this context. Can you say a little bit about this um, idea of informal empire and its relevance to telecommunications as it's manifest in this context? Well, the, the idea of informal empire has been around for some time. Um, for example, uh, we have a wonderful volume um, published by Princeton University Press, I think, in the eight. 80s, 1980s, on the uh, Japanese informal empire in China. Um, This differs from the formal empire where you essentially establish administrative control over a foreign territory as your colony, whereas informal empire rely on uh, various what we call unequal treaties to ensure your influence uh, at the expense of uh, a country's sovereignty without taking over its uh, territory. So Japan had uh, taken part in this uh, treaty port system in China proper. Mm-hmm. So in that sense, it was already in the informal empire system that is also enjoyed by other Western powers. But in Manchuria, Japan's uh, influence was uh, more uh Dominant because of the victory over Russia in 1905, and it was more or less recognized by other powers that Japan had a special interest uh, in Manchuria uh, before 1931. That is, uh, before the Japanese invasion that led to the formal takeover of uh, Manchuria. Thank you so much. And Manchuria actually takes us into um, from chapter two into the next chapter as well. 
Right. So from this very rich groundwork, we move into the second part of the book, which is called Technology, um, and which looks at the period from 1931 to 1940. Now, the next chapter um, starts off by talking about Manchuria as a kind of testing ground for new forms of territorial control um, right. by the Japanese. And this, you know, as you argue, helps shape the Japanese telecom industry. Can you talk a little bit about that? Right. Um, to understand how telecommunication technology works, um, one also needs to look at the uh, institutional setup how um, telecommunication is run, by whom, um, how successfully it is. So at, in Japan, um, telecommunications as well as postal service have been under government monopoly uh, because of its uh, important strategic uh, and security dimension, as well as uh, the government desire to control the finance. <laughs> Now, this model would not be very proper in Manchukuo, which Japan set up nominally as an independent country, because uh, it would be diplomatically incorrect, so to speak, to have the Japanese government uh, run telecommunications in another country. Mm -hmm. At the same time, uh, th those Japanese uh, military and civilian bureaucrats uh, running the show in Manchuria, uh, setting up Manchukuo in 1932, felt that the new government of Manchukuo was not in a position, didn't have the you know know-how expertise to run this very, very important um, communication uh, operation because it had a huge uh, military significance as well. So, and the Another reason is that um, the government monopoly over telecommunication in Japan did not always produce good results in terms of meeting the demand, for example, uh, because of the budget constraint. Uh, Japan at home, that is, could not satisfy the rising demand for telephones. Um, you know, during World War I in particular, there was big business uh, boom uh, at home and uh, the existing infrastructure could not meet the demand. Mm -hmm. So when the Japanese thought of setting up telecommunication in Manchukuo, they said we want to avoid this problem which we experience at home. So the solution that came up is to have this uh, so-called uh, national policy company uh, known as the Manchukuo a Manchuria Telegraph and Telephone Company set up, uh, run as a private business with heavy government involvement. So it's a kind of government business collaboration to ensure that uh, they will get adequate funding and run as a business, but at the same time respond to government and military needs as quickly as possible. So they want to have the best of both worlds, so to speak. And they largely succeeded in Manchurgua. But it's not all fun and games. <laughs> and so right. part, of the, um, part of the negotiation between Japan and China um, over what's happening in Manchugua, hint, uh, you know, there's some debate, and it hinges on telegram revenue and rates. 
Um, and as I was reading through this section of the book, um, in this chapter in particular, the language mobilized in the course of these debates really surprised me. So um, as part of a Japanese demand that China lower its rates for Japanese mm-hmm. language telegrams, they suggested, and I, I, this is a quote that you give in the book, Japan finds it unacceptable that China should treat its neighbor of the same race the same way it treats whites. Right. Um, so can you say a little bit about the, the significance of the kind of the racial discourse and the discourse of an Asian race that starts coming up, I think, very um, clearly in this chapter and that really starts being a very important part of the story from here on in? Yes. Um, as, as we know, um, in the late 19th century, uh, leading Japanese intellectuals such as uh, Fukuzawa Yukichi tried to play down this same race same script uh, idea that kind of bound Japan together with its Asian neighbors such as China and Korea. So the famous formulation was Japan should leave Asia and join Europe. Now by 1930s, um, as you put it, this uh, race discourse was re-emerging in Japan often as a justification for various things. So in this particular case uh, is to lower uh, the telegraph rates, which means that it will be cheaper to send Japanese telegrams, which will, of course, benefit Japanese uh, customers. Of course, later, this um, uh, race discourse was also used to justify Japan as the leader of Asia. Uh, this right. became really uh, pronounced in what is called the Greater East Asia co-prosperity sphere uh, in the late 1930s and early 40s. Mm-hmm. That's right. Um, And this actually continues to be a theme as we move to the next part of the book or the next chapter of the book, um, but manifests itself in a a kind of interesting way that um, leads us to a discourse on the idea of indigenous technology. Right. So so to get us there, we move... um, if this chapter actually focused on uh, the military to look closely at the significance of um, sort of the role of the military in organizing this kind of telecom network, especially in Manchuria, the next chapter moves to a focus on civilian technical experts and setting up Japanese telecom. Um, and in fact, you know, argues that these civilian technical experts, these engineers, prove indispensable to the larger imperial product uh, project. Exactly. That's something I would like to bring to light. Um, We tend to assume technical experts uh, as essentially robots, you know, taking orders from their superiors and have their no no, uh, subjectivity or initiative. Um, By looking at how Japan or Japanese uh, engineers try to develop what they call Japanese technology, in the 1930s, in particularly a uh, certain long-distance telephone uh, technology, uh, we can see that uh, technology is not simply a matter of you know hardware and tools, but also an arena where a new kind of ideology uh, was developing. Namely, Japan now not only had uh, rid of itself of the dependence on Western technology, but has emerged as a uh, a leader in developing its own unique technology. And that, of course, in turn would justify Japan's uh, leadership uh, of Asia. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, Japan you know, would be seen as still a dependent on uh, new advanced technology from the West. 
which will, of course, uh, undermine Japan's claim to leadership in Asia. Right. Now, what made a technology Japanese at this time? Now, this is a very interesting phenomenon, and uh, I think it boils down to the fact that uh, Japanese pursue certain type of technological solution that best suit Japan's needs. I think it really boils down to that. Because uh, when we think of this particular long-distance cable telephone technology, um, in fact, um, foreign engineers in Germany and the United States were working on this pretty much the same idea. And one could even argue that the AT&T in the United States, uh, which had its magnificent Bell Lab, um, had even um, developed this technology ahead of the Japanese. But what um, produced a different outcome was that Japan was desperately in need of a long-distance cable that would connect Japan with its dependency of you know, Manchukuo on the continent in the early 1930s. So they could immediately put this new technology to implementation. Whereas in the United States, this is still after the Great Depression, and uh, business such as AT&T was very hesitant of making new investment. Um, this is one. And second is this ideological dimension. Because Japan in the 1930s is increasingly uh, trying to assert its own identity and its uh, kind of Asian uh, leadership role vis-a-vis mm-hmm. -vis the West. So um, this new technology gave Japan a perfect uh, justification to make that claim that uh, we now have uh, this unique Japanese technology, although in reality, I think um, it shared uh, many similarities with technologies then being developed in Germany and the uh, United States. And you argue that engineers are actually crucial to this story. Yes, um, I think um, engineers have various uh, uh, roles um, in developing technology, but also uh, kind of publicizing the technological advances Japan was making. And this has impact on policymakers. Um, as the Japanese policymakers was charting uh, sort of new territories and coming up with plans for um, uh, autarky in Asia, essentially, uh, the idea is that you know Japan should uh, integrate uh, its economy with Manchukuo and China, uh, so as to be less dependent on resources from elsewhere. Mm-hmm. So um, when the bureaucrats and uh, military planners look for means to uh, enhance integration. Transportation links, communication links were an essential part. So when Japanese engineers were making progress with technological development in telecommunications, this uh, suits Japan's uh, sort of strategic goal uh, very well. And at the same time, uh, these technological advances were also publicized at various uh, expos uh, within Japan. And raising this public awareness that Japan was, you know, making uh, progress as well. 
Mm-hmm. And actually, you're bringing up the importance of the idea of imperial integration is a right. perfect segue to what I wanted to ask you next, which is um, in the in this part of the book and in the next chapter, you talk about what you call um, a conceptual revolution. Right. Um, as the as Japan's product project for a new order in East Asia in the late 1930s starts incorporating new ways of talking about um, time and space and the mastery of them. And you argue here that um, this is a move from a discussion of links to a discussion of networks. And this this seems really crucial. Can you talk a little bit about that? Well, um, my argument is that up to the 30s, Japan of course, that are, are already acquired um, the colony of Taiwan, annexed Korea, uh, also uh, acquired the southern Sahalin, which they called the Karafuto after 1905. And of course, links between these colonies and home islands had always been very, very important. <laughs> now, in the 1930s, after Japanese occupation of Manchukuo and after the idea of autarky began to gain uh, influence in the uh, government uh, planning and policies, um, we're really seeing a new conceptualization of space in East Asia with Japan at its center, but no longer emphasizing just individual links between Japan and each of the colonies, but envision a whole area under Japanese control and organically integrating with each other um, in order to prepare Japan's uh, uh, um, preparation for total war, essentially. Um, So the integration often build on this discourse about this organic unity, uh, which were used by various Japanese uh, publicists and and officials. So how do you organically integrate a a vast area that include Japanese former colonies, but also the new uh, puppet state Manchukuo and vast areas in China? So that was a, a momentous task for Japan. And this was the uh, the background, uh, essentially, for the chapter that I talk about um, envisioning imperial integration. And my argument here is that uh, telecommunication networks uh, enhanced by Japan's new technology offered fertile ground for imagining Japan's imperial integration that eventually would... Um, extend to really vast proportions by the time of uh, Pacific War. And as a reader, reading through this material and reading up, especially this section, it seems, it starts to seem completely obvious, right? Of course, um, this kind of new way of envisioning the empire would rely on what's happening in telecommunications. It makes perfect sense, but it's something that I think a lot of us would never think of before, you know, before you show us. Um, Well, yeah, um, to some extent it's true. I think, uh, generally speaking, historians um, tend to take technology as uh, for granted. It's somehow natural. Um, Whereas, uh, as as my book tried to show, uh, 
really, this is a field of a lot of tensions and a lot of contradictions,、uh, as well as a lot of you know potentials for imagination. Yeah, it's wonderful.、Um, I loved this section of the book, as hopefully is becoming clear in our discussion. But this is not the last section of the book, and so moving to the next section of the book, this、um, as you move from here to、uh, the rest of the story, we move from issues of、um, integration and technology to issues of explicitly framed in terms of control. Correct. Correct. Right, and here I think、um, you raise really wonderful contrasts、um, between what's happening in the Japanese imperial、uh, interest in Manchuria and what's happening elsewhere in the empire. So as we move from a discussion to integration,、um, it becomes you know controlling these different areas of the empire becomes crucial. Can you、um, talk、uh, a little bit for our listeners who may not、um, again? Have much background in this area、um, about、uh, what some of the differences were between the Japanese imperial situations in Manchuria and Korea in the late 1930s, and how that was manifest in the different telecom regimes in these two areas. Okay,、uh, before I get to the control,、uh-huh. if I may backtrack a little bit to、oh, talk about、uh, imperial integration. Sure.、Um, we emphasize the imagining、uh, imperial integration, but. It also went beyond that. So、uh, one of my discoveries、uh, in the documents was these blueprints、uh, Japanese government produced in the late 1930s of what they call the East Asia Telecommunication Network、mm-hmm. um, that largely relied on cables, long distance cables, both. Overland and underwater, that would connect Japan with、uh, Manchukuo, China,、uh, as well its、uh, colonies. And this did not stay on the drawing board either.、Um, the one linking J- Japan and Manchukuo was completed in 1939, and they started building uh, other sections um, uh, extending into China. And eventually, this. Uh, uh, Planning、uh, acquired a really、uh, ambitious proportion, so they would include Southeast Asia and even Australia as well. So,、uh, it, I just want to emphasize that,、uh, in fact, it had a, a direct、um, results in terms of the uh, uh, planning. So,、um, back to the question of control. Yeah, I'm trying to use telecommunication network to. Uh, look at Japanese empire as a whole.、Um, I, I, I feel that you know, in the last、uh, several decades, we we see a, a really huge outpouring of works on the Japanese empire and、uh, colonialism. But many of these works uh, um, really um, excel in getting into the depths of particular colonies.、Mm-hmm. For example, you know, Korea, and then we can you know look at in, in different. Uh, aspects or, or Taiwan or Manchukuo,、um, but there seem to be、um, an absence of efforts to see how empires, the Japanese Empire,、um, different parts of the empire, either compare with each other or connected with each other.、Mm-hmm. So I thought,、um, given the nature of The、uh, telecommunication networks. This would be a good、uh, way to look at it. So the question you raised:、um, How did Japanese-controlled telecommunication in Manchuria differ from, say, occupied areas in China 
or its own colonies in Korea. Mm-hmm. Now, we need to look at both political and economic aspects uh, to answer this question. In Korea, um, Korea was a Japanese colony of sort of uh, a special relationship with uh, Japan. Uh, it's governor general appointed by the emperor. And uh, so their telecommunication was run as part of the government apparatus, uh, somewhat similar to uh, Japanese uh, home islands. Mm-hmm. Manchugua, as we discussed earlier, had this uh, uh, company uh, abbreviated as MTT. Um, and this became a model of operation for areas in China that came under Japanese occupation because it's uh, diplomatically correct, it's uh, financially sound, and politically secure. Mm -hmm. So this MTT model that I call uh, were adopted to um, North China and then also in Central China. Mm-hmm. So in North China, they set up this North China Telegraph and Telecommunication Company in 1938. And the same year in central China, largely around Shanghai, um, the Japanese set up uh, the Central China Telecommunications Company, essentially uh, following the MTT model. And f- uh, for if I can jump in quickly, yes. um, for our uh, listeners um, who will pick up the book and read it after this interview, um, the North China Telegraph and Telephone com- um, Company actually had a song, right, that you give us yes, the lyrics yes, to. Yes. <laughs> the Hokuden March. The, yes. con- the country of cherry blossoms, the land of orchid fragrance, bound together by the culture of communication and the new tide embracing Asia is the shining new order. I just love right. that. Oh, thank you very much. Now, unfortunately, I don't know the melody, so I cannot sing oh, that's, it. That's okay. That's okay. Okay, but I'm sorry. So you were you were talking about the different contexts of um, colonial management, right? Uh, so, and and I would say uh, this model worked uh, generally quite well, uh, with the exception that in Manchugua, the presence of Japanese uh, in all levels of these companies were much larger than in China proper, either North China or uh, Central China. Um, So the song you just uh, gave uh, underscored the importance the Japanese saw of creating a harmonious relationship between the Japanese managers and technicians as well and the, the, the Chinese employees, which were in the majority in, in China proper, in order to make sure the telecommunication uh, runs smoothly. Mm-hmm. And in being very um, careful to talk about the differences in these different local contexts, you also go on to devote an entire chapter, which I think is a fascinating um, chapter in this book, to Japanese expansion into Southeast Asia and the role of telecommunications to that process. Can you um, can you tell us a little bit about the ways uh, that in which this context of imperial Japanese expansion and, uh, of course, the role of telecom to that was importantly different um, in, in a lot of ways, it seems, from what's going on in Korea or Occupy China or Manchukuo? Yes, uh, as you as you put it, uh, Southeast Asia was uh, quite different from um, Northeast Asia in terms of Japan's uh, goals of expansion. Um, 
for one thing, most of Southeast Asia were under uh, Western colonialism, with the exception of Siam, which is present-day Thailand. Um, and Japan's initial approach to Southeast Asia was more or less through peaceful means that uh, emphasized the trade links uh, between these countries and Japan as a market for Japanese products, and also increasingly as a source of Japanese uh, uh, energy supply, uh, raw materials, especially from the Dutch East Indies. Mm -hmm. um, this increased the friction between Japan and uh, the Western colonial countries, especially after uh, the World War II broke out in Europe in 1939, which Japan saw as an opportunity to increase its pressure on uh, countries like Holland, uh, uh, France, for example, to give up more concessions. Um, and then after Pacific War broke out at the end of uh, 1941, Japan, of course, uh, now occupied this vast areas in island and uh, continental Southeast Asia. And one of its uh, uh, needs is to build uh, secure communication uh, connections uh, with uh, Japan. Now, before Japan's occupation, these areas had uh, many uh, communication facilities created by the Western European um, uh, countries and the United States in the Philippines, but they were oriented toward each of these home countries, so to speak. For example, um, the cable, underwater cable in Southeast Asia often connect them uh, via India and then uh, back to uh, England. So one of the first things Japan tried to do is to redirect these existing facilities uh, to be used for communication with Japan, although they um, did not always succeed, partly because uh, a lot of these dam uh, cables were deliberately damaged uh, by um, countries like uh, uh, Britain uh, before they uh, gave up these areas. So Japan faced uh, a new challenge, establishing telecommunication network in Southeast Asia at a time when Japan was extending very, very wide, uh, very thin, it was already suffering from shortage of material. Um, and also Southeast Asia is a tropical climate. So many of their equipment that were working just fine in Northeast Asia were encountering uh, problems in Southeast Asia. So in this area, um, they not only had technological problems, they also faced a administrative problems. Um, they had ideas of creating a similar uh, umbrella telecommunications company to take charge of uh, running telecommunications. But in Southeast Asia, the military had a, a tremendous influence. Uh, essentially, occupied areas in Southeast Asia were run as uh, under military occupation. So this idea of a, a civilian company eventually did not uh, materialize. So compared to Northeast Asia, telecommunications in Southeast Asia were run more or less on an sort of ad hoc basis, so to speak. Mm -hmm. And you allude actually, in, or you alluded in your comments just now to this kind of 
impending uh, breakdown of this whole system, which were, which is really what the next uh, section of the book and the final section of the book brings us to. But before we get there, um, right. I have to ask you about one of the most hilarious moments of the book, which is in this um, larger section here, which is the moment when you talk about the film Wireless Breakthrough. Right, right. <laughs> and, and I have to admit, I tried to YouTube this <laughs> to see if I could find. Um, this is a hilarious story that's sort of part romance based on, you know, espionage um, ma- uh, made possible through um, telecom right. uh, technology. Right. Can you uh, briefly talk a little bit about this fantastic sounding film? Well, um, I, I love this example because it really showed that the, the Japanese government uh, bureaucrats were aware of the need to inform the general public of these wonderful uh, technological uh, breakthroughs. Uh, the, the the usefulness of the wireless, uh, but also call to the danger of Western presence uh, in Japan, you know, harboring espionage and this and that. So uh, they created this film in the mid-1930s called Wireless Breakthrough, um, which uh, featured a handsome uh, communication ministry employee um, working with this girl, try to um, kind of unearth a espionage cell that ran out of a foreign trading company. But in this pro- same process, they uh, showcase a wonderful mobile telephone that could be used on the train and the... the uh, <laughs> wireless uh, 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 communication. And uh, so I guess it's both entertaining and educational. And uh, yeah, unfortunately, I, I couldn't find anything that uh, either on YouTube or in, in film. <laughs> but the thing is that it was also broadcasted on the radio. So uh, if you couldn't see it in the movie theater, I assume a lot of people would turn in to uh, hear the whole thing played out over the radio. That's right. And do you have access to a recording of this anywhere? Um, now, I probably should start looking. I, I haven't uh, tried very hard. I, I don't, this is a problem with uh, communication media, is that a lot of the things that had existed before, you don't have the proper technology to play it, even if you find it. Right. Yeah. Right. This reminds me of something about... Uh, um, the recording of uh, various telephone conversation during the 1936 February 26 incident in Japan was a failed military coup. And they found uh, these recordings many, many years later. But you have to really go through a lot of technological processing, so to speak, to be able to listen to it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, if you ever um, find access to <laughs> that recording and find a means to play it, do let me know uh, because okay. it's just fascinating. Okay, um, so moving to actually the the culmination of this book and the final section of the book, you really use these um, two. Ch- final chapters to look at the way that this um, monumental system starts breaking down, and you call it a nervous breakdown. 
Right, right. At the very end, toward the end, yes. Exactly, toward the end. Um, so can you take us um, a little bit of the way through, so what were the, some, some of the major problems that plagued the attempt to coordinate telecom um, across the empire, and what ultimately led to this breakdown? Well, um, I think the problem come from several sources. Um, one is the administrative uh, contradictions within the Japanese Empire. Um, before we talk about breakdown, uh, in fact, I also talked about uh, how they try to build this vast network, not only in terms of connecting wires and uh, matching frequencies for the wireless, but also in an administrative way. Right. So this is a very important aspect of you know any network, so to speak. So how did they brought this together? Well, they realized that uh, within the overall Japanese empire, in this case, I also include occupied areas in China, uh, telecommunication were run under different agencies, some government, some you know these quasi-government companies, and each had its own kind of autonomy to some extent, but. In order to ensure the empire-wide network would work smoothly, uh, you need to iron out differences, uh, standardize rates. So they conveyed this annual East Asia Telecommunication Forum that uh, included all these players, plus the military, uh, plus the Ministry of Communication from Tokyo, plus the uh, manufacturers and uh, construction companies, which all had a role in... Uh, ensuring this network works smoothly. So the first few years, they um, made some progress, but uh, as I said earlier, Korea uh, proved a headache for many other uh, parts of the empire because it insisted on its unique status within the Japanese empire. And it was very unwilling to give up uh, its autonomy to, you know, ensure that the overall network would work uh, more efficiently. So we have this contradiction that telecommunication that we're supposed to integrate, right, to make things, you know, unify, integrate, work organically. But at the same time, each individual units of the network because these are human beings, they have their own, you know, sectoral interest. They're very, very uh, unwilling to give up too much of their own autonomy, which in turn would undermine uh, the operation of a whole network. So that's one aspect that eventually contributed to the breakdown. The second is the uh, technological, and this became particularly uh, obvious as Japan was losing its uh, initiative uh, in the war after 1943. Uh, its economy was strangled through Allied bombing and blockade. So um, it, it really couldn't come up with um, adequate uh, uh, equipment and repair and uh, its uh, in, uh, human resources was being depleted. And so you, you began to see increasing breakdown of uh, communication uh, along important routes. And I, I mentioned the fact that sometimes they have to use airplane to send telegrams because uh, the, the link was broken down. Right. 
Now, in um, in talking about this, and especially in the final chapter or the the chapter right before the conclusion where you um, go through this breakdown, you actually take us through a really fascinating set of sources um, that you use to actually um, give us a glimpse into the flow of the kinds of information that were transmitted through the Japanese telecom network, um, including sort of categorizing kinds of personal um, Mm -hmm. telegrams. Uh, Can you say a little bit about that? Yes, um, in, in the materials I collected, I, uh, there are um, what is called the traffic uh, data uh, compiled by either the Japanese government or these telecommunications companies. And uh, I thought they would off- offer uh, some glimpse into what kind of uh, traffic went through these uh, communication network and through that to show the, so to speak, the daily life of the empire. Because uh, we tend to think telecommunication as, you know, uh, uh, essential weapons in military uh, operations and diplomatic negotiations. That's all true. But we should also keep in mind that to actually um, sustain the communication from a financial perspective, um, it is the private users who pay fees to send a telegram to receive money order um, that uh, allow these uh, telecommunication network to operate financially. So um, I then get into some samples to show that, in fact, the vast majority, based on uh, the government and a company analysis, who sent Telegram, the majority were, were uh, non-government, non-civilian. So there are several types of uh, institutional users, for example, business mm-hmm. uh, relied heavily on telecommunications network, uh, press, the newspapers and news agencies also was a big user, and they were actually given uh, preferential treatment of lower rates. Mm-hmm. And then you have uh, just you know individual uh, customers who used telephone and telegraph for purposes such as travel. Uh, you would, you know, send advanced telegram informing your friends or family that you're arriving and please meet me at this hour at, you know, certain station, uh, or announce, announce the change of travel plans. Um, send greetings. So, again, I think this is a wonderful reminder that the Japanese empire was populated by people. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's not just empty space. And by people, we're talking about Japanese as well as the, you know, Chinese and, and Koreans and, and others uh, who are all um, making use of the telecommunication network, of course, to different degrees, I should add. Uh, and then also a telecommunication network um, was a channel for financial flow. Um, you can wire money from colonies to the home islands or uh, vice versa. So uh, basically I want to use this an opportunity to um, highlight the kind of uh, what I call the daily life of the empire uh, in the case of Japan. Yeah, that was one of the most fascinating chapters for me. Um, So I think that worked really, really well. Thank you. Well, uh, thank you. (laughs) 
Well, Daqing, we've taken up a lot of your time. And as I've mentioned before, this is such a rich book. Um, I have uh, six single-space pages worth of things that I'd love to ask you, and I'm sure we okay. could talk for many more hours. But in order to give you a break, <laughs> um, I, I'd, I'd love to hear um, a little bit about um, if there's anything else about the book that we didn't cover but that you'd um, like to point out for listeners who may not yet have had the opportunity to read the book. Um, yes, there is uh, one part uh, when I discussed the occupied uh, areas in China that I found quite interesting that the Japanese as well as Chinese Indies company were working to simplify Chinese telegram system mm-hmm. um, in order to allow more users to use it and then reduce the uh, cost. And this has to, something to do with the peculiarity of the Chinese uh, telegram system. Uh, as some of the uh, listeners may know that um, the Chinese language uh, is not a phonetic uh, system. It's based on characters. And to adapt it into the modern telegraphy, um, uh, in the late 19th century, essentially, they came up with this uh, um, numeric codes for like four numerals for each Chinese character. And of course, then each numeral had its corresponding Morse codes. And through that, you can send um, through the telegraph. And that made it quite cumbersome and costly to send a Chinese telegram. And that was often cited as one of the reasons why uh, telegraphy was not as developed in China, uh, among many other reasons. So when Japan... Um, started these telecommunication companies in China, they were interested in uh, increasing the revenue, which means they would like more people use it. So they were thinking in long term uh, how to simplify the telegram system, and they had uh, various Chinese working on it. So I thought that that was something I, I didn't uh, expect uh, at first. And the second thing is this uh, fax technology. Oh, yeah. Now, and this is something we tend to associate with, let's say, 19, you know, post-war, right? right? 1960 or 70s or 80s. Well, I mean, we still used facts. Um, but when we look at the history of technology, it's quite amazing that facts had a long history going back to 19th century. Um, and in the early 20th century, they were already developing uh, what we call uh, facts today um, for sending uh, photos uh, you know, for use in newspapers, for example, of different quality, I mean, degrees of quality, of course. Um, so again, in the Japan-China context, um, it goes back to this idea that Japan-China are of the same race, same script. So when you mention that song, you know, you try to uh, harmonia- harmonize the relation between the two countries. And the Japanese uh, uh we're interested in using the fax technology to break down the barriers between the Chinese and Japanese. So, I mean, this would uh, uh, serve Japan's interest. And so the idea is that uh, the Chinese and Japanese can talk to each other just through writing. And this is known as the pen uh, talk. That's a direct translation. Um, So with the fax technology, the Chinese can just write down, you know, in a letter form and then send it uh, through this 
telecommunication system and uh, it would be received by someone in Japan and then understood instantly without going through this cumbersome coding and decoding. Um, so in this sense, again, telecommunication really is a vehicle of imagining many different things of interior imperial integration of you know uh solidarity between japan and china uh you name it and that is a perfect statement i think <laughs> with which to um close this discussion of our of your really wonderful book um but before we let you go i'd love to know and i'm sure our readers are interested or our listeners are interested in knowing what's next for you what are you working on now well, um, I'm still interested in um, technology and especially communications technology and media. And uh, I'm currently teaching a course on media and society here uh, in Japan. So um, I'd like to explore possibilities of, of looking at how modern communication technology uh, transform East Asia Um and that's a uh, relatively um, early stage of, of my research. Uh, so that means like, I would go beyond these telecommunication that I analyzed um, and emphasize the um, integrated nature of different kinds of communication technology, include, including the postal uh, communication. And, uh, but... At the moment, my, my main uh, focus is on another area of my research, which deal with uh, historical memory and reconciliation and uh, dialogue among historians across national borders. Um, so that's, that's something I'm, I'm working on. Well, thank you. I and I think if that's your goal, um, this book is an absolute um, exemplar of the, the way to reach that goal. Um, and I hope this gets a really wide um, readership. And I think a lot of people um, in a lot of different kinds of fields are going to benefit from reading this book. So congratulations. Um, and thank you so much for being with us today. Well, thank you so much for giving me the opportunity to talk about, about my book uh, to your readers and, and listeners. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you so much for being with us. This is Carla Nappi, your host, and you've been listening to new books in East Asian studies. See you next time.